My grandmother had the only Negro store in the town, and she'd had it some 40 years. And uh, about 4.30 in the morning, during cotton picking time, the people that owned the farms would come by my grandmother's store and pick up the workers. And about 4.30 in the morning, it would, my grandmother would light lamps, and these men and women would come in with so much vitality and promises about what, how much cotton they're going to pick today and what they're going to get done and all that, and they'd buy stuff for, for lunch. And then the feeling of the store in the morning was one of life and, and hope and all sorts of wonderful things. And then in the afternoon, around 6, the workers would come back and the trucks would pile up in the yard and these men and women would get out. And it would be so heavy, so uh, re not relaxed. It was a tenseness that was just from exhaustion, really. And they'd come in and get food sometimes for dinner. But most often, a lot of the men would sit out on what was the front porch. And my grandmother, being very religious, would come right inside the door and close the door. And the men would sit there with guitars and sometimes juice harps, you know. And they'd sing these long, mournful songs. And my grandmother would sit right behind the door and say, I don't believe in that. That's worldly music. But she'd be patting her foot all the time. <laughs> As she say that, yes, yes. her heart was denying what her head was saying. Yes. <laughs> she, she loved it. She wouldn't leave from behind the door. You know, and the door would be cracked open just a little bit. <laughs> well, that's a marvelous scene. Yes. That's right, because she's very devout. And oh, blues yes. was sinful music. Yes, that's worldly music. Worldly. It seems it is now, and yet it was ten years ago, Maya Angelou, a guest on the program, was remembering her grandmother, with whom she was raised part of the time as a little girl in Stamps, Arkansas, in the store she describes. And Maya Angelou's our guest this morning, and ten years have gone by, and a book is the result. Miss Angelou is an incredibly fine dancer, performer, but now a writer. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, her autobiography, Random House, published. And in this book is this very moment you're describing. Do you, do you recall, it's funny, that was 10 years ago you were saying it, my Angelo. It's such a strange sensation to hear that, that um, it tells me, one, how very impressive that situation was, that condition was on me, and also how long this book has been gestating, mm -hmm. you know? It sounds almost like the book. Mm -hmm. I just, I had no idea that 10 years ago I knew that. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking, that woman you call Mama, your Mama. grandmother, uh, what a figure, as she is in this book, too, with a strength, very devout, very religious, very strict about it, too. But the feeling that you evoke in, in your life story here, why know why Cage Burning, of the early morning, the guys, but it was also a certain excitement to you, wasn't it? Oh, Everything yes. was in that store. Oh yes, that I, that store was a playhouse of things. You know, it was, uh, oh, well, you could buy anything from sardines to uh, feed for hogs and uh, kerosene, yeah. thread, everything. Yeah. So uh, the store was really my favorite place to be. And you and your brother, Bailey, Bailey. you were the two. 
And in the store, when you heard the guys as they'd go to work and they'd come back, and of course, the, they'd come back with so little and working so hard, the songs, of course, were blues they were singing, weren't yes. they? Yes, and sometimes long meter hymns of what are called moans, mm -hmm. but the long meter hymns with, uh, with the, the, the heavy content, sometimes not about work, maybe about the Brazos, mm -hmm. you know, maybe about the Red River, mm -hmm. but under the, under the lyric itself, was the deeper lyric, mm -hmm. the, the, the real heart pouring. Mm -hmm. You know, as uh, Leroy Jones calls us, the blues people. The blues people. That's right. Mm -hmm. And that was happening mm -hmm. underneath the gospel music, you know. Can you recall, this is difficult, uh, anything that would come to mind, even just a refrain, a phrase? Yes. There's uh, one that was a favorite of mine. It was... You know, a city called heaven. That's poor right. Poor pilgrim of sorrow. Poor pilgrim of sorrow. And deep there was the moan was there. That's right. It was a, there was a spiritual at the same time the blues choir. Mm -hmm. Both were there. There was one long meter that went, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want more bread of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So I'm thinking, your grandmother, of course, these were sinful songs. At the same time, you knew that she liked them. Yes, yeah. well, these were really these church these songs. Were church but, songs, But yeah. when a, a, a real blues, the old, old blues, when one of the men would sing, or women would sing one of those shouts, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, she, she had her work cut out for her to keep from smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I think what strength she had, we'll ask about the other part of your family in a moment as you and your brother Bailey traveled to other parts of the country, a uh, the other, your mother's part of the family, but she was your father's mother. That's right. And there was a certain time you as a little girl, because this is a story, the one you tell, I know why the cage were, of remembered hurts to the little hurts and indignities of this woman you loved who was That's so right. strong when she was mocked by little white girls. Well, she owned most of the land, the poor white trash, which was all considered one name, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, poor white trash. Which really was, you, uh, yeah. really were the, the sharecroppers too, mm -hmm. and so. Who were victims themselves. Who were victims themselves. Uh, she owned most of the land they lived on, and yet at 10 years old or 12 years old, they could demand that she call them Miss, and they called her by her first name. And she was so dignified and so so severe and yet so soft, you know. It, it, her love just just pervaded everything. And she, these girls would pass the store and uh, my grandmother would be standing in front, very tall and very black and with a great white apron, starched so stiff it would stand up, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, these girls would pass by dirty and ignorant and and offensive, insulting, and say to my grandmother, hello, Annie. And my grandmother would say, hello, Miss Jean. Hello, Miss Joan. Hello, Miss whatever. And it would just kill me. I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wasn't allowed to call any adult by their first name. And, and I was trying to be such a good girl and trying to be so clean and all the things she said were the things that were going to get me into heaven. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't do that. If I did that, she'd kill me. There would be no question about it. So I, I, I resented that double standard, I, and I couldn't get her to 
sympathize with me, I thought, you know. But she, though, maintained that one, you described this moment, I know with these pages I've marked here, where you were crying because of the indignity, but she uh, saw you crying, you know, yeah. pretended nothing had happened, went on, just, you know. She said, just to get up and go wash your face. She had one. She had one. She was a winner. Yeah. I just didn't know it at the time. Yeah. I thought winning, you know, it, when, when we're young, either chronologically or psychologically, we think winning means actually holding the triumph in your hand, mm -hmm. something tangible, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know in reflection that she had won. She was a winner. Her eye was on the prize. That's right. <laughs> That's right. She had many defeats, but she was never defeated. Yes. So she then, uh, you different people were there. Her son, who was uh, Uncle your, your Uncle Willie, who was crippled, and he also wanted to be recognized as somebody. He was also a victim, but he wanted to be. He was su a very intelligent man, and um, he read uh, a lot. And but by by being physically crippled, and by being crippled by the the southern prejudices, you know, imprisoned by that, um, he was doubly victimized, yeah. even triply victimized, because he was aware, yeah. you see. Yeah. So <clears throat> one lived at, this, at one and the same time with this woman who never gave up, and a crippled black man who was intelligent and who never gave up, yeah. you know. Yeah. The hope, the hope uh, that, that lives in the breast of the black American mm. is just so tremendous that uh, it, it overwhelms me sometimes. Yeah. And so you're talking here about a town, a small town, Stamps, Arkansas, and, and here was this life, you know. And of course, your description of the church meetings, <laughs> yeah, of the church, of course, the church, this was the great outlet, wasn't it, in a way? Yes, yes. The letting go. That's right. If the church, the church was a, a lay center as well, you know, as our store. But, I mean, as well as being a spiritual center, um, people met there and got a chance to express themselves, uh, get some of this energy out, oh. excuse me, <coughs> get some of the energy out, uh, uh, speak in terms of praise and hope, you know, always a tomorrow, mm -hmm. no matter mm -hmm. how bad it was tonight, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. over Jordan, by and by, Soon one morning, all positive, all progressive, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, deep river, uh -huh. some, somewhere, uh, moving on up, moving up a little higher, mm -hmm. uh, a higher room. Yes, all these yeah, things the going room, forward, yeah. the upper room, right? Yeah. Going, going, uh, so that people were lifted by Saturday yeah. night after the the work week, and then using that little money that had been scraped together to buy not enough provisions on mm -hmm. Saturday yeah. and getting home. They needed Sunday um, in order to survive. And then go back to the next day, the fields to pick That's and it. to break the back. But that day you describe these scenes, because we're talking to my angel in the book is Jerry removing and revealing, of course, too, and endearing. I know why the caged bird sings, even the title. Mm. You got that Mabby Lincoln, did you know? No, well, uh, I got, Abby suggested yeah. it, yes. It's from a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh -huh. And Abby and I are very good friends. We've been close, close friends for 15 years. And we, ri we write, both write poetry. Uh -huh. So 
every other day or so we call each other and say, listen, girl, let me read you this mm-hmm. poem. Listen. Mm-hmm. So I had asked uh, Abby and Max Roach, her husband, who... Uh, Marvelous drummer. Uh, one of the world's Great greatest, artist. if not mm-hmm. the greatest, and great composer, uh, to help me write a, um, a title for the book. Now, Max is a genius at titles. So just a few days before, he'd come up with something that was close to it, and it wasn't quite that. So one morning, I called Abby. I said, listen, when's the last time you heard Sympathy by Paul Lawrence Dunbar? I just run into it again. Mm. She said, it's been a long time. So I said, okay, get a cigarette. We both said, you know, mm. this is our style. Mm. And I said, I'm going to read it to you. So I read it to her, and she said, Maya, that's the title of your book. I know when I got to that line, I know why the caged bird sings. That's right. The caged bird has a certain way of singing. It's different from that bird that's free. Huh? Yes, you see, the, my suggestion. I don't agree with Mr. Dunbar. Mm. You see, what he, I, mean, I agree with his lyric, lyricism. Mm. I agree with his rhythm. I mean, he, he influenced me as a poet more than any other poet. But I, I don't think that the caged bird uh, flings a prayer up to heaven. I think that. The cage, the free bird, doesn't sing very much. He's busy finding worms and taking care of his business and, uh, mm. you know, marrying and <laughs> things. Mm. The caged bird sings about freedom all the time, mm. all the time. And that song uh, is uh, is so rich and so beautiful that I knew that that was yeah. the title of mine. Because we know who the caged bird is, too. Your memories are very clear, too. Your childhood memories, this truism, become so vivid as even as you speak of the church of Sister Monroe and the Reverend yeah. Taylor. <laughs> preach it, preach it, you know. Preach it. And, you can just, and then she goes and she helps him demonstrate. <laughs> That's yeah. right. She, um, she had a voice, a screechy voice, and an open-faced crown, too. You remember that? Yes, yeah. I remember that. I remember her smile because it was just like sunshine, yeah. you know. And uh, she was a jolly woman. But when she started to shout, because of her heftiness mm-hmm. <laughs> and because she, it would take two or three people to hold her down, mm-hmm. uh, people kind of looked at askance when she started their first preach it because, yeah. you know, it meant that the church was going to rock and uh, the minister would likely get yeah. hit because she would just run right up to the altar and scream at him, yeah. preach it. Yeah. And uh, she did once and knock her. Uh, the man's teeth out. <laughs> <laughs> this, of course, is again the feeling of letting go of a certain kind of ecstasy. Yes. Of feeling the spirit. That's right. Sense, because it, it, it is the release mm-hmm. from the everyday, everyday, everyday drudgery yes. of it. And it also says something positive about I am a child of God's yeah, too. Yeah. You know, I am so close to him, his spirit is in me and moves me. Yeah. It's very positive. It is, yeah. Now, in contrast, there was a very good woman who, who liked you because you were a student you were reading, you and your brother Bailey, yes. and Mrs. Bertha Flowers was more or less was, I suppose, the aristocrat of, uh, of the town, of the, of the black community yes. of the town. She like, is, I'm sorry to say, now dead. I've been told that. But she was, she's the mother of two of the great civil rights lawyers in Arkansas. Uh, the Flowers, Attorney Flowers, who are oft times mentioned in Jet and Ebony. And um, some years ago, after Daisy Bates had led that Little Rock, um, uh, you know, struggle in the schools, schools. 
She and I were sitting one one evening in New York alone, I think in my apartment or hers, mm -hmm. and we were talking about people who had influenced us and so and I told Daisy, Well, there's a woman you've never heard of, but her name is Birth is Flowers, Mrs. Flowers, and she was so fantastic for me. Mm -hmm. She just reached in, she saw something, and she took the time to reach in and encourage me to read, encourage me to speak again, in fact. And um uh, Daisy said, you mean Bertha Flowers? I said, yes. She said, girl, that woman is so fantastic. And then she started telling me the things that Mrs. Flowers was doing. So I said, when you get back to Little Rock, because she was mm -hmm. based there, would you please tell her to write me? Mm -hmm. About a month later, I got a letter from her that said, dear Marguerite, because she Mark, never yeah. would call yeah. me Maya. Yeah, your brother Bailey called you Maya, yes. meaning mine. And she said, Dear Marguerite, of course I remember you. I always knew you were going to do something wonderful. This was when I was working for Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. She said, I always knew you were going to do something wonderful. Now, you've just started. No matter where you are, you've just mm -hmm. started. And she wrote on, and she, on the back of the, the, the one-page letter, she turn, turned it over and said, Now I have to close now. It's 12 a.m., and I guess she must have been 75 at the time and she said I have to take a plane in the morning at 6 mm. for New Orleans I'm there's a convention down there and I'm speaking oh that's marvelous wonderful yeah and here here again so we're thinking about the life and the creativity that is there untouched really untapped and unknown by so many you see and in your book uh, Maya Angelou our guest I know where the caged bird sings in this book you describe all that is there in this little, this is in the little town of Stamps, Arkansas. You, may I, may I say oh, something? Sure. You see, what you say is so relevant, I think, to this time in, uh, in the American history. When, when you say all of this is there, all that energy, all that intelligence, all that hope, all that drive <coughs> is there in the inner city within that outer city. And I think sometimes, again, I'm oftentimes inundated with, with uh, passion, overwhelmed with uh, regrets sometimes. I think, suppose the Reconstruction had worked, had been allowed to work. If we look at, the, at America today and admit it is the most powerful nation on the planet, controlling some 56% of the planet, the, uh, it, it has a, a, an ethos that if I w were asked to sum up in a few words, I would sum it up with, yes, I can. There's something wonderful about this country, even though the Reconstruction did not work. Now, suppose it had worked. It's thrilling if you think, suppose all these people were really working together and, and the hate was not there. The fear was not there, the bitterness, the guilt. Suppose instead it was a country. As James Baldwin says, the, not, the yet to be United States. Suppose it was the United States. It's thrilling when one thinks about that. And in the reaction to the thrill, for me, is an immediate depression. I think, my God, what as a nation we have lost. Yeah, of course, the Angelou is touching on the waste, the waste, and uh, of all the possibilities. You speak, of course, of the Reconstruction period, 
had it not been betrayed as it was and had there not been the Jim Crow laws that by the way Jim Crow laws were passed later they That's did not right. come naturally they were passed and so right. you know what might have happened naturally had not uh, forces of depredation one way or another betrayed the reconstruction right uh, I mean, uh, Horace Caton died a short time ago. Oh Horace yeah. Caton, great sociologist. His great grandfather sociologist. was the first black senator from yes, Mississippi. I know. Hiram Revels. And Revels, yeah. And his he's got a brother, Revels. Revels Har- Right. And but the, the Horace talks of this in his uh, long old road. He yeah. And the he rem- things he remembers, all those possibilities, you know, dream deferred. That's right. And come back to that. What again, does it do? Does it explode? Yeah. That's what one has to, I mean, that's what Langston Hughes was saying. Yeah. He says, uh, does it uh, dry up like a raisin in the sun? Yeah. In a sense. Does it rot and fester yeah. and run? Yeah. Does it explode? Yeah. This Terrible. is the question. And of course, in, in, in a sense, not a reply to that question, but in explaining so much is this beautiful biography, this book of yours that Random House has published. We talked, so we come to other aspects of your life. Your grandmother was a tremendous influence in the small town. Your father would come to visit. He was another kind of man, your father. Now, your father was his, uh, her son who went to the big city and became a, a doorman at a fancy hotel and lived a certain life. He, he had a different kind of influence on you. Yes, I think that uh, Mr. Alvin Beam, who is the book editor for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He reviewed the book. And he's the only person so far who's, f- who's been able to read from the book one of the things I wanted said, or who said he, s- he saw it. He said, and that fine failed father. Mm-hmm. And again, this is just another victim, another case of, of waste. My father got a medal in World War I in France for saving his commanding officer. And it was some very high medal. He learned French. Uh, I suppose that, I- that inspired me to start learning languages, you know? I'm sure that that was because he spoke French and he spoke Spanish uh, very well, grammatically per- perfect, English grammatically perfect, with no education, you know, high school, I suppose, or whatever it was at the time, maybe eighth grade. One couldn't speak to my father without thinking that this man must be a doctor, you know, at least. And so he was called when he went to work for the naval uh, base in San Diego. His title was uh, naval dietitian, you know, or something like that. And he would really, uh, food, you know, it was just, it really was not a qualified position. Uh, But he was a very elegant man and extremely failed. Extremely failed. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, I mean, the black man just has so few chances to become all he can be, you see? And that's a terrible thing to do to anybody. And I imagine your father, I'm, I'm thinking about his relationship to you and to your brother Bailey. Uh, there he was, and so he would seek to impress a certain way, you know? Because he wanted to be That's a right. man in the eyes of his two children. Of too. course. Yeah. I, I began to understand him much better upon writing the book. Yeah. You see? Oh, did you? Yeah. Yes. Uh, James Baldwin reviewed the book, 
and said that this book, One Word For It, is redemptive. And I, I, I see that, that I seem to be redeemed, you know. People are redeemed in my eyes uh, after really looking at them and trying to see not just the fact, yeah. but the cause. What, how did that fact come, in, come to be manifested? Yeah. Yeah. And I see that my father really was himself so felt so guilty, you know, for not being able to be all those things he appeared to be that we didn't see him often. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the, the case with many black men who leave their wives and their children you know, sociologists and social workers tend to uh, make almost a, a quip out of the fact that uh, black women are often deserted, uh, black families are deserted by their, their male uh, supporters, of husbands, lovers, uh, sons. But quite often, one has to admit that a man has a certain responsibility and if he's not able to discharge that responsibility because of circumstances outside his control, he then has to get out of the circumstances. You know, in Richard Wright wrote a short story called Man of All Trades, I think it was, in which the man, the man disguises himself as a woman, as a black man, and puts on an apron and a dress so he get a job. Yes. Good Lord, somewhere uh, vaguely. Uh, it's a Richard Wright short story. Yes. This is the point. In fact, Baldwin mentions it in Nobody Knows My Name. See, this is the very thing you're talking about, aren't you? Right. So the denial, the denial of his manhood, of the job, of course, this in the sense was your father too, so you would not see him often because he felt, he felt that he was not what he really can be or is. Yes, right, right. And when we did see him, oh. he was there... His English was like that. And Marguerite, you know. You have it in the book, by the way. It's a marvelous description. Now we come to other aspects of your growth and your development, your maturity, you and your brother Bailey, visiting your mother's family, your grandmother Baxter. Then this is St. Louis. There's a wholly different aspect of a black culture. Well, my grandfather was a West Indian. My, mo my mother's father, very, very black, and he had a West Indian accent. My grandmother was largely white. Uh, she didn't look black at all. There was just nothing about her that one could say was Negroid. Um, and she had been raised by a German family, so she had a German accent. And uh, they, they were real estate people in St. Louis, my, fa my grandfather. And they were, you know, people of substance in the community, oh. as my grandmother had been, but uh, the urban society and, this, and the country, rural societies, are just so different. And this is the point, isn't it, really, that here, uh, in a sense, your, your grandmother, whom you call Mama, represented the urban, right. urban uh, the, the, the rural, rural, the rural yeah. world. And now you came to the big city. That's right. And now you came to Brick almost buildings. And now you came to also a high life life. That's right. With your mother. That's right. Radio brothers and, and um, Victrolas, and we had uh, ate liverwurst for the first time, mm. you know. And uh, my grandmother always loved black bread. You know, she had kept. There were certain German. Um, Culture, cultural uh, eff effects mm -hmm. that uh, 
she just that were part of their lives. This is interesting how the, there's an overlapping here of different cultures yes. in your life, too. So yes. Your grandma's almost Germanic. Yes. Uh, oh, very. But at the same time came the city, St. Louis. St. Louis, a hotshot city, and your mother and her brothers and her friends. Yes. And of course, this is something else, isn't it? That was very fast living. And again, I think it's Beam who says, uh, my mother was of the cafe world. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Everything was, it was like a big cafe, you know, with things happening all the time. A lot of excitement mm -hmm. and, um, of course, there was uh, underworld activity and, uh, and different speech patterns, mm -hmm. which were very strange mm -hmm. to me. People spoke so fast. Uh -huh. I couldn't believe it. Now, now of course, yeah. listening to St. Louis accent, uh -huh. I realized that that's a southern accent yeah, too. Yeah. You know, but I thought they were just, you know. <laughs> because you were accustomed to the slow Very speech of a small slow. town yes. in the deep south. Bailey, your brother Bailey, your mother was obviously quite a beautiful, is a beautiful woman. Yes, and she looked like Kay Francis, the movie actress. Mm -hmm. Bailey, so Bailey used to go see the Kay Francis movies because he, he loved his Looking, mother so much. Yes, uh, we used to go and she was, they, they had the same elegance and they have the same face. And my mother didn't have a lisp, although Kay Francis, Kay Francis did. And my mother was prettier, you know. Mm -hmm. The only difference was that my mother was brown, well, beige, I guess. Um, and Kay Francis was white. And I thought that her color, my mother's color, was much prettier. Uh, and my mother had was a very gay. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. in most Kay Francis movies, she played those terribly sophisticated yeah, and yeah, gay, uh -huh. you know, with long sleeve blouses, crepe blouses mm -hmm. with cufflinks and things. Yeah. <laughs> well, she had, well, so your mother was uh, obviously uh, loved you too, but she wanted you both to be free, didn't she? In a way, not to be astonished too by the nature of life itself, That's right. to accept it. That's right. She still does. Yeah. She's my mother. Is one of my mother is a seaman now. She's on the Matson lines. She f she f ships from San Francisco to Los Angeles to Hawaii to Tahiti, Fiji, uh, Australia, Bora Bora in Australia. Is <laughs> what does she do? She's a, a, a what do you call it? Stewart. Telephone no telephone operator. Mm -hmm. But she's taken a course. Uh, so she's one of five women in the United mm. States who are chemical warfare firefighters aboard the luxury ships. Oh, oh really? <laughs> oh, that's a string. <laughs> she went to, she uh, took this. On the matter of first, you were, uh, <laughs> when you lived in, when you moved to San Francisco when you were young, about 15, 16, you became the first uh, black conductorette yes. of, of, the, of the cable car. cars. No, right? not the cable cars, no. the street cars. The street cars. Yes. Um, I had been in San Diego. I had had a very traumatic experience. And I was ahead in school. So um, I told my mother I'd like to work for a semester. And she, as you, you've mm -hmm. noticed, mm -hmm. uh, she said, fine, good. You'll go back to school after the semester, get a job, anything you like. So I thought it would be exciting to be on the streetcars. There were women on the streetcars. Mm -hmm. But I had never considered that there weren't any black women on the streetcars. I just saw women. It was during the war. And jobs were, you know, begging for people. So I, I, and I couldn't get a job in the, in the war plants because my, you had to show your birth certificate and mine would have shown I was 15. So um, I applied for a job. And 
I was refused. And when I was refused, I had to admit why I was refused, because I was black. It wasn't for the first time because I was six foot almost, or uh, because I was from Arkansas, or because I didn't, uh, I wasn't very friendly, very social. It was because I was black, and I refused. I refused. So I just started a campaign mm -hmm. to get the job, and I got it. And that was it, yeah. The funny thing, you did not take no for an answer. No. And that was in, but I'm thinking about your life experiences, that what you did. This did not come up by accident, you're feeling this way, because your family, obviously your grandmother played a role, her, her strength in a different way. Yes. And My your uncle. mother and your uncles, but y your mother had different friends, and one was Daddy Cladell. Daddy Cladell was my father, was my stepfather. That was her husband. Mm -hmm. So now he, Daddy Cladell was your stepfather. Yes. But Daddy Cladell had friends. Yes. And Daddy Cladell lived by his wits, and among them, Mr. Redleg, Redleg, as and others, they have you know different names. Yes. But they told about how one has to live by his wits sometimes to take advantage of the bigotry of a certain man. The story is so great, I think you can <laughs> tell it. It's a, but the book is full of a great deal of humor, too, we have to point out. Well, and one of it is this story. Uh, Daddy Clydell owned pool halls and gambling houses. And he went to the third grade in school in Slayton, Texas. He, uh, mother, my mother was quite educated, and she did, uh, she gave us certain instructions we were taught what to do how to dress uh, where to how to eat how to order how to tip in in pub in restaurants and, and uh, but daddy Clydell knew the rackets so he taught me to play cards he taught me to feel cards and tell when they were sanded um, he taught me how to look at cards and see if they were marked how to weigh dice and know if they're loaded uh, i play every kind of card game from cotch to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, head up, um, anything. And um, then he brought in a lot of con men. And con men who were really professional con men uh, who maybe take two marks a year and live very well mm -hmm. in other cities and mm -hmm. never take marks in their cities. And he told them now, uh, my, my dad, daddy, he was the real father I knew. Um, only one I've lived with and knew. He, uh, he'd call the guys in, and he spoke always in that thick, Slayton, Texas accent. Mm. And he'd say, uh, come on in here, um, fellas. Uh, I want you to tell uh, my baby here <laughs> how you sold that supermarket in Dallas. <laughs> 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 and the guys would say, oh, Clyde L., please. And he'd say, no, I'm, I'm raising this girl. I got to educate her. <laughs> so they'd, they'd be forced. Uh, I mean, they would do it. So they told me, not only the supermarket, but they sold a bridge in Oklahoma. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, one man said that, you see, you use the white man's bigotry against him. Yeah. And um, there was a white man in the town who was had... Tulsa. In Tulsa. Yeah. Who had um, just exploited all the Indians and the blacks. And he, he said if if he hated anybody more than Indians, it was blacks, and his mother must have been frightened by an African on an Indian reservation mm -hmm. or something like that, <laughs> because he hated them. Uh, but he, and so he exploited them. These two con men went down. They checked him out, 
and decided to play him against the store. And in Lone Con, that's considered, um, that's when you set it up for two months, maybe, and spend a few thousand dollars. And you have uh, cards made, a telephone taken in, a secretary, everything, the whole front. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You play him against the store. So they found this man, and one of the guys played very, very ignorant and very shuffling and went up to the man and said, uh, uh, look here, I got a friend who, who owned a piece of land, you know, and uh, some white man, some Yankee, want to buy that land. And it's, it's, it, see, he got it because he's part Indian. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that uh, the Yankee want to buy it because it's got a toll bridge on it. <laughs> well, so anyway, it goes on. I can't really tell the whole story. But uh, <coughs> the white man checked out the land, and he was also told. Also playing on his greed, on too. On his greed. His and bigotry. His also, bigotry. this black man's obviously stupid, and he can get this. Well, thing, it know. is true. They, the one thing that con men will tell you, the only way you can be a mark is that if, if, if you want something for nothing. Mm. If you're mm. greedy, mm. you're set up. Mm. Perfect. Mm. So, so the star has taken up, uh, this shuffling man has talked about that. They sent for a white con man yeah. from New York, uh -huh. my father's two friends, mm. who came down as the big real estate agent from the North who was interested in buying this land. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, the white Southerner, the Oklahoman, went to the office to talk to this Northern a real estate man, realtor, and he said, listen, the northerner said, now, I'm going to get this land for maybe 70000 something like that, uh, because the guy is ignorant, you know. Uh, but don't, I've checked it out, my office has checked it out, he's got the title clear, you know, when he signs, it's mine. But if you, if you check it out, or you raise any kind of dust, the state will become aware of that land and what, that he really owns the, owns the property and they'll move in and confiscate it or in some way force him. So uh, just leave it alone. I'll, we, you and I can work together. Well, the white cracker, the southerner, the Oklahoman said, you know, no soap. He knows niggers. You know, that's his attitude. So if this northerner is going to buy it for 70000 he can buy it for less than that. Get the whole thing. <laughs> And so, <laughs> so he, they made the deal. At first, he went to uh, he was brought to this Indian, black American, <laughs> which all of us can claim, and most of us do have Indian mixtures. And uh, he went to him and he explained that uh, he'd better have that land and how bad the Northern whites were. And he talked about the damn Yankees and what they would make him do if he lived up north. And so the shuffling Indian Negro said, well, you know, boss, I'd rather you have this land than that white man from that Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> so it took some time, and he bought it. For about 50000 That's uh, right. And then, as uh, uh, Daddy Goodell's friend tells you the story, Red like, then they left town. They got about 40000 of this guy's dough. That's right. Cash. Cash. And that is not a rare... <laughs> that is not rare. I mean... When I was growing up, I used to know men who dressed well, very intelligent men, mm -hmm. who lived on maybe two marks a year. We should point out a mark is someone who is taken. Mm. Go ahead. See, you knew yes. this. 
Isn't this, a, this is another aspect of our society and our time that's beautiful? Obviously, the story, by the way, is hilarious. It takes several pages in Maya Angelou's book, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, as your father's friend, as Daddy Pidel's friend, Redleg, is telling you the story. Yes. But this is, again, the, the stupidity. Basically, you're talking about the stupidity of racism. That's in right. a way, it's almost a metaphor. Of course, yeah. because um, these men were born before the turn of the century. What a black man could be by 1915, I mean, he, he, he was absolutely, his, his inability to function was crystallized. He simply had no yeah. way to move. And yet here are men who lived by that intelligence. Suppose, imagine, if that intelligence had been able to be used constructively, that is, f more constructively, for the common good. You know, we would we really be a great country. That, yeah. And the back and forth, you, uh, my Angelo, your growth, your development, you observing all this, the air of wonderment about you, but seeing all this. And, of course, the book, at the very beginning we were talking, your voice was heard on, in a conversation here in the studio ten years ago. And you weren't planning to write the book then. No. And then it came about, it's the accretion of all the memories, yes. isn't it? Yes, And I, I'm really pleased to hear that 10 years ago I said I was an observer, yeah. and that, I suppose, is true. But I come back to so many aspects. You returned, every now and then you returned to stamps to your grandmother, and there's one, so many things that you've, I almost love to have you read out loud, remembering things, sitting the Joe Louis Victor of a schmaling. Oh, a canary, was it? It was, a, it was Carnera in this case. Yeah. yeah, it was Carnera. It could but, have been any. But it was hearing it. Uh, yeah. The description there. Where the, were you in stamps then? Yeah. Yeah, and you, I suppose, in the, around the store, gather on a little, a little radio. Yeah. And the black hearing this. It's just anywhere there. Well, let mm -hmm. me. Yeah, let why, me. Why don't you All find right. the spot? Uh, after, well, Joe hadn't really gotten into the fight, and, and there was a, finally the announcer said there are, First, I must set the scene. There were people from all the farms had come in and were sitting on Coca-Cola boxes and leaning against the wall and so forth and listening because it was very important. And the announcer said... Well, that, that of course, that tells so much, doesn't it? Mm. Because Joe wasn't just Joe. It's, again, you know, we think of the great white hope, of course. Mm. But it's... It, you remember that? Even you, you were describing it as as an announcer would too. Yes, and but, the champion. But you were that there. Man. You were was, there in yes. the story. There was a man who used to. I don't. I'm sure he's very famous. Uh, who used to announce f the big championship fights, and his voice was so familiar, and it was mm. kind of husky. And he said, "Winner and still heavyweight yeah, champion." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, what is beautiful about the book, aside from the uh, memory, the vividness of the memory of Maya Angelou, is the portraits too. They're almost like paintings. When, mm. when um, uh, the wi when Taylor's Reverend Taylor's wife dies, oh, yes. Taylor's wife dies. You have you describe the scenes, and your grandmother as the hostess taking yeah. care of the people, and, and uh, the sermon on charity. Yeah. The idea of the poor praising God, we talked about that too. And, but throughout, it's, this, it's the vividness of your memory. So I'm thinking about the, uh, there's so many parts I want you, I'd like to have you read just as you read that one. Well, you know, I'd tell you what I'd like to do, Stas, if I might. You know, I have a, an album of poetry out, and I have a poem 
that really is to those women, particularly to one woman who is a maid in New York, an older woman who sits on the bus with a big smile, but her eyes don't smile. If the bus stops too fast, her, her mouth widens, but she's not really smiling. So I wrote a poem to her, and it's also to all those black people, old black people particularly, who um, have this quality. I think this is what they're saying. The poem is... Wow. That, that poem, is that a book of poems? Will that be out soon? Yes, it's an album. Oh, it's an, it's an album. Well, yes. oh, the poetry of... Oh, that's the poetry of my angel. It's GWP. The, the label. Well, that, how, can, how can one talk about that poem? Uh, ex- other than just memories, I suppose, on that train some centuries ago, the train from Chicago to Washington when the march was going to be led by Dr. King. There was an old man named Clarence Williams. And no, he's just an old man. He was mm-hmm. on the train. He said, I wanted to be there. He said, I got to Washington, but I wanted to be there. He's in people and some old women who worked as domestics and as cooks were saying, we want to be there. And the old is it. We want to see it for our children. No, 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 no. I want to see it now, in my time, in my me. Time. Yes. And so this lady you're describing, this yes. woman, in yes. a sense, the the bitterness, the irony. The irony. And of course, that's the blues, isn't it? Yes, laughing to keep from crying. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And in a sense, you might say, this is a ballad. It's a blues, a ballad, and a spiritual, the autobiography of Maya Angelou, my guest, beautiful guest. I know why the cage bird sings, Random House of the Publishers. Is there, I'm thinking, I always think of some code or something. Comes to your mind something musical in a way of thought, because this is, this is music in a yeah. sense, too. Yeah. Something maybe your grandmother sang or something you just remember, a phrase or anything that just comes to your mind musically, because basically it's, it's music we're talking about. Well, um, I think the... What, what comes to my mind, strangely enough, is a song by Oscar Brown Jr. and, uh, and Max Roach. Max Roach mm. wrote, wrote the music. I don't know why. But I suppose it's because I'm saying, I'm trying to say in that book, You Can Win. I'm saying it to young black children. I'm saying it to old black men and women, to middle-aged Chinese uh, teenage whites. I'm saying it about the human condition, really. And there used to be a saying, I was down so far, getting up never crossed my mind. I think that getting up is always on the black man's mind. And on the young blacks, they are getting up. So this song, I don't know why, again, uh, I want to sing Driver Man. And I suppose... Why that came to my mind is that uh, it's quitting time. Yes. yes, it's time to get to another level. My Angelo, I guess. So two things: this poetry album that looks beautiful, of which James Baldwin writes. You know, I'm honored and happy to know I'm lucky. If you can listen, so are you. This album, the poetry of My Angelo, but primarily the conversation's been about her book, her autobiography. I know why the caged bird sings. My Angela Random House, the publishers, and quite available and quite remarkable book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Studs. It's wonderful to see you again. See you keep on keeping on. <laughs> I'll stay on the case. <laughs> I see it.